Much of our economy, as we all know, runs on uh, hundreds of millions of transactions that happen on a daily basis throughout the country, and uh, all these uh, transactions have a supply and demand, and, uh, and the things that are purchased with currency, you know, they are often uh, categorized as either, you know, goods or services. You know, we know that phrase, goods and services. Uh, those two terms basically cover most, if not all, of the things that are bought with uh, money, you know, in our in our society, in our economy. Uh, goods are one thing, you know, they're physical items. Uh, you know, they obviously hold value, and that's why there's a price tag on it. And you know, you need a certain amount of, you know, monetary currency uh, for you to purchase that item, and and that's good, but. Service, uh, it's, it's kind of different, right? It's kind of different in that it's not, it's not tangible. It's not like an item. It's not something you can just hold in your hand like a good, right? Uh, some, oftentimes it's like a job or some kind of action uh, that's done by someone providing the service. But obviously like goods, these actions or deeds or service, whatever you want to call it, would um, provide value. And because of that, uh, it would warrant a price, right, for said service. And when we pay for a service, we deserve to be serviced because obviously we paid for it, right? We we paid the the required amount, the monetary uh, amount uh, to deserve that service. So uh, when we pay for it, we deserve it. We deserve to be served, right? So maybe that's why... I get so angry when I sit down in a restaurant and I don't, you know, it's been like 15 minutes and I don't even have a cup of water, you know. But the service that that you pay for, you deserve to be serviced, right? Service is something that we're we're familiar with, you know. We pay for it and we receive it on a daily basis, even with things that we don't necessarily, you know, on a, a initially think about it as service. There's a lot of those things. Uh, but that's service that we deserve, right? That's service that we pay for, and therefore we ought to get the right amount of service. But what about service that we do not deserve? Mitch Album, the author of Tuesdays with Maury, wrote in his novel, For One More Day, this quote. I also believe that parents, if they love you, will hold you up safely above their swirling waters, and sometimes that means you'll never know what they endured. And you may treat them unkindly in a way you otherwise wouldn't. I think this quote pretty much sums up the sorrows of parenthood uh, pretty well. Though I, you know, I haven't myself been a parent uh, just yet. <laughs> they endure and sacrifice a lot, and I know that uh, from watching my parents uh, raise two boys in order to provide for their children. And most of these things go unnoticed. I probably, you know, have uh, scratched the surface in, in terms of the things that my parents have sacrificed and my parents have done in service for me, uh, even though uh, sometimes I like to think that I know a lot of those things. But some of these things are, are gone unnoticed, and it can be a thankless job. Another saying about parenthood that we all know, you know, like... You, you don't understand. You can't tr- fully understand your parents until you become a parent yourself, right? We all have received undeserved service. You know, there have been times when I'm sure you can think back uh, to a moment where uh, you have received something 
by the other person's grace, mercy, and forgiveness, and uh, just kind-heartedness, that you have received something that you did not deserve at that moment, whether it's by just through your actions or your behavior, or maybe just your state of being. You know, when you're a kid, you're not expected to bring in rent or anything like that, but parents still are, you know, obligated and, and, and expected to provide for that child. There are cases of undeserved service where we have received those things. It's not a business where you pay for the services. It's not like a restaurant where you walk in and you, and you pay them for the food and you pay tip for the service. And, and because of that, you, you expect the service and you think you deserve it, rightfully so, because you paid the price. But there are services, moments, where we receive service from somebody when we not, uh, did not deserve it, when we do not deserve it. A great example of which is the parental service or sacrifice that we all have received in some way or another for us to be all sitting here in this place right now. For if we always receive from other people what we deserved according to our deeds, according to just purely what we deserved, if that was everything that we always got, then we wouldn't get too far. We'd be pretty pitiful. Because a lot of times we don't deserve good things. A lot of times we fail other people. A lot of times we fail uh, the ones that we love. And if it was the case that we always received based on what we deserved, then I would say uh, we wouldn't make it very far. The prophet Micah and his, uh, his words recorded in the book uh, Micah are concluded with the praise for God's mercy and compassion. It was just read to us in Micah chapter 7, verse 18 through 20. It reads, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will treat our iniquities underfoot. You will cast out all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. All throughout human history, this world has always been full of selfish gods and and idols that constantly take and never give. Right? Resources, sacrifices, blood, devotion, and more were often thought to be required by the followers of these artificial images and, and figures. And for what? And they were often fickle and irrational. Right? We understand that these gods are not real. You know, they're, they're uh, figments of mankind's imagination. But for argument's sake, they're fickle, they're irrational, uh, much like humans, the human, the very humans that worship them. In, in fact, in many cases, these gods were just like humans. The only difference was that they had superpowers, but oftentimes they were full of flaws, full of faults, full of hubris, and, and, and they were petty, subject, subject to change. Think about the stories of Greek gods like Zeus, is full of debauchery and faults, and, and, and he's selfish and petty. And for millennia, humans have bowed down to these images for their, quote-unquote, blessings. Right? To these people who would have been so used to these gods. Right? The God of Israel, Yahweh, 
would have been so refreshing, would have been so different, so foreign. A God, the true God, the one God that is actually real, who is not just a man-made image and amplifications of man's insecurities and, and, and flaws and imperfections. This God who is actually loving and forgiving, God who desires reconciliation and, and love and real meaningful relationships with his people, it's unheard of. Right? To the nations around ancient Israel, such a powerful yet also loving God would have been so fascinating and different to the world of the New Testament right? that we read of in the New Testament. Such a God who is holy and compassionate, who has, has statutes, who has standards, but is also forgiving and is merciful and is also gracious. That kind of God would have been so foreign to these people. And are we any different today? I mean, we may not struggle with, you know, pantheons of Greek gods or, or, or temples of idol worship, but we still bow down to many different things, right? We worship images of men and women who are just like us, if not worse, and, and, and we, we feed them. We endlessly feed their selfishness and their egos just in the hopes that they might glance at us and, and maybe, maybe that'll give us self-satisfaction and fulfillment. We feed ourselves and claw around for, for our 15 minutes of fame and, and we look for fulfillment and satisfaction in things that are just utterly temporary and trivial. Thousands, if not millions of people doing whatever they can do to make it, right? And, and stand out among the crowd of indifferent people. Taking drastic measures to just get a, get a little piece of, of clout. We do all of these things and more, and, and we hold imperfect images, flawed characters on pedestals, hoping that doing so will fill the void that's in our hearts. So to us, yeah, it is refreshing to think about God who is merciful, who is loving, and who will look after people like us as it was with the nation surrounding Israel in ancient Israel's time and to the world in which the early church found themselves in and all the idol worship and all of the, the, the debauchery of this world, God has to be refreshing. The prophet Micah, uh, he resided in, in basically the countryside and, and he was pretty distant from the epicenters of uh, the governmental power of his nation, right? A.K.A. he was around a lot of people who were considered marginalized, who were poor, who were uh, oppressed, who were often taken advantage of, exploited. And he, in his book, is the mouthpiece for these people, mouthpiece for God in championing these, these people. His prophecies of judgment point to the punishment for the unjust uh, and, the, and the rulers who exploited the powerless Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. Micah chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. And on the other hand, his prophecies of restoration point to a future of peace and unity under his name. 
God's name. In chapter 4, verse 3 uh, through 5, he shall judge between many nations, or many peoples, and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the people walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. This is a God of mercy and compassion, the likes of which cannot be found in human history and all the idols and images and all the things that we have put up on our pedestals that we have created for ourselves. One who represents the lowly and the poor, those who have nothing to give, the people who are always taken advantage of, exploited, the weak, so to speak, in our society, those who cannot fight for themselves against the tyranny of the evil men in power. Instead of siding with the people who have things, the haves, God champions the have-nots. He has always done that, and he still does. And what a refreshing and wonderful God such a God is. So no, we do not deserve our God. We don't deserve the service that he has given to us and he continues to give to us today. We do not, and we'll, we'll never be able to, quote-unquote, deserve. We cannot possibly expect, uh, oh, sorry, uh, the mercy that, that love and the love that God provides for us. Perhaps as with, uh, with parenthood, uh, like that saying I mentioned earlier, um, you can't fully understand uh, your parents until you become a parent yourself. Perhaps if we could step into the shoes of God, maybe, maybe we can understand. But we know that we can't do that. We grow up and maybe we'll become parents. That's a possibility, but we can never become God. We can never step into his shoes, so we can never understand. But the fact remains that we are undeserving. And yet when we were undeserving, God gave us service. So what does this mean for us then? For God to have done such great things for us, we can't possibly expect that to be it, right? We can't just possibly sit back and and think, oh yeah, God has done these things, he's great, he's marvelous, he's wonderful, thank you God, and that's it. It doesn't work like that. There is something that is expected of us, an, an obligation that we are called to, and, and at the least, at the very least, we who know what God has done, we, the people who, of God who, who God has called, we at least must feel some kind of a tug, some kind of a pull at our hearts, inspired by the things that, that, that God has done for us. Knowing that, we can't just sit still. Keeping in mind, then, the undeserved pardon and the compassion that we have received from God. Let's remember three things about what that means for our spiritual walks. Three points about undeserved service that we have received. And the lesson will be yours. Number one, God humbled himself first. God had, has, and will always have every right to leave. Right? In 
the the Psalms, uh, the psalmist, whether it be David or someone else, uh, oftentimes talks about the power of God and how mighty He is. In Psalm 147, verses 4 through 5, He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. That's Psalm 29, verse 4. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing, nothing is too hard for you. That's Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17. Right? God is powerful. And he has every, every ability to leave if he wanted to. He can. He has that. And not only that, God is also perfectly just and righteous. He He's sinless. He is the complete total opposite of sin. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 4. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Psalm 145 verse 17. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7. Paul says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whoever one sows or whatever one sows, that will he also reap. He is just. And and because of this, because he is almighty, all powerful and also perfectly righteous and perfectly just. If anyone had the right to leave, it would be God. If anyone had the right to desert humanity, desert us. Sinful and imperfect and failing creation. It would be God. And yet God has always persisted in his relationship with his creation, with mercy and grace. But what about, think about Israel in the wilderness. God has done quite literally everything that, that man could possibly imagine to get Israel out of Egyptian slavery. He sent the plague, split the Red Sea. Rained bread from the sky. It made water spring from a rock. And amidst all of this, God leads him with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. These numerous miraculous deeds, and yet the Israelites still ended up grumbling throughout the entire journey. And what did they do at the end of it? They built an idol. They made, a, they, they made a golden calf and started worshiping it as if that image was God, the God who carried them out on his back out of Egypt. Now, God promises them that, that they will, you know, there will be consequences to their actions, to their decisions. But God never abandoned Israel fully despite their unfaithfulness, even though he had the ability and the right to do so. What about King David? Right? Though David was a man after God's own heart, he also stumbled, right? When David messed up, he messed up pretty big. Adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah in 2 Samuel chapter 11. The census in 2 Samuel chapter 24, which resulted in much death. I mean, those things come to mind. Yet with each mistake, God does not forsake David, or God does not turn his back on the promises that he made them. Instead, he renews his relationship with David. He seeks David out 
the prophet Nathan and, and, and asks him to come back, to see the error of his ways and to straighten his path again. He steers him back into the, back into the right path. And, and the same is with the other kings of Israel's monarchy, including Saul, Solomon, and all the other kings, good and evil. You know, they all, at some point, one after another, forgot the covenant that they had made with God. And they failed him one way or another. Many were evil, and, and they forgot Israel uh, and their covenant with God. God was in his right to cut ties with Israel. He has always been because they continuously failed him and they continuously were unfaithful. And yet God persisted. And then us, right? We like this, these examples, we constantly stumble and make mistakes. And many times we outright deny God with our actions, with our words, with our thoughts. You know, Paul talks about uh, a lot of past circumstances in Ephesians, especially in chapter 2. Verse 1, he says, you know, we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. Verse 3, he says, we were we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Verse 5, when we were, again, dead in our trespasses. Verse 11, we were Gentiles in the flesh. Verse 12, we were separated from Christ. We were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant. And we had no hope, and we're without God. And we were all once like this, as Paul says in Ephesians, but when we didn't deserve it, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Right, And this takes an incredible amount of humility. Right, And in our own relationships, we fail each other. We fail each other, and we fail to forgive each other. And we all understand that we're imperfect. We're all We're all imperfect, and yet we still fail each other, and we still fail to forgive each other. Yet God, the one single being who has all the right and all the power to say, forget this, doesn't say that. He doesn't condemn, and he doesn't judge. Instead, he forgives, and he shows mercy. And it's something that we often fail to do with our smaller relationships. Number two, This implies that this is an example uh, that needs to be followed, right? I think of uh, John chapter 13, where Jesus is washing the feet of his disciples. And I think it's a perfect illustration of this, uh, this nature of God, where he is forgiving and is merciful. And he's providing a service that his recipients did not deserve. And Jesus also himself treats it as a lesson. He says, you know, he charges his disciples to do the same in John chapter 13, verse 14. And he cites the reason as to why they must do it. And it's that Jesus is the, the master and they are the disciples. They're the students. And the master is greater than them. So if he does it first, then his disciples must follow suit. John chapter 13, verse 15 and 16. And, and this portion of scripture always blows my mind because... Uh, the way John portrays Jesus, his very focus of, of how Jesus is portrayed in the Gospel of John is that Jesus is the Son of God and he is the Christ. In other words, John is trying to tell his audience that Jesus is basically God. You know, we see that 
uh, at work in, in John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? He was in the beginning with God. All things that were made through Him, or were made through Him, without Him was not, made, was not anything made that was made, right? For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, right? That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life, John 3.16. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. John 8.58. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God. John chapter 20, verse 31. John is obviously trying to portray in his gospel account that Jesus is the Son of God and that, that he has deity, he is deity, that he is divine. And that he is the Christ. And yet, what does Jesus do in John chapter 13? Moments before he is taken away, he washes feet. It blows my mind. And why did he do this? John chapter 13, verse 1. Because he loved his own who were in the world, and he loved them to the end. Talking about Jesus and his disciples. And such a powerful message should convict us. And it must convict us to action. You know, if you know me, I, you know that I'm, I'm a little bit of an artist. <laughs> um, I've always been on the more artistic side of things, uh, music, art, whatever. Um, and when I was younger, whenever uh, we would go watch a movie, oftentimes it would be, be like action, you know, some like a boy would want to watch. Uh and I'd be, I would be so moved. I would be so excited. My adrenaline will be pumping. And on my way home, I'd be like, you know, I, I gotta do something about this. I gotta do something about this. So I would go home. And because, you know, I, I, at least I thought I could draw, <laughs> uh, I would go home and, and I would draw, whether it be like scenes that I remember from the movie or, or characters that I thought were cool or whatever. Those movies moved me to, it moved me enough to move my hand. With a pen on it or in it, and and I drew these things. Um, this image of Christ, God the Son, kneeling down to first. They didn't wash his feet first. They didn't wash Jesus' feet first. Jesus did it first. Jesus took that initiative, and this image of him doing so, the Son of God, kneeling down to wash the feet of the creation, the created. It's a powerful image, and, and, and it's an example for us. It's an example for them, but it's also an example for us, and it's something that ought to move us and to inspire us to action. And this is nothing new. We examined through Scripture uh, uh, just even moments ago. We know well that God has always humbled himself to us first when we did not deserve it. Shouldn't that move us to follow suit? And lastly, and with this we'll close, is our humility is an extension of God's reconciliation. Right? God has first served us, but why? You know, of course, God is love, first John chapter four, verse eight, and, and He cares for us, first Peter chapter five, verse seven. But you know, with that love also comes an expectation to obey and to follow and to follow suit, like we just talked about. Paul employs in, in all, most of his writings, if not all, this uh, sort of logic, a train of thought that, that begins with um, 
the great blessings and the things that God has done for us initially. And then he moves on to the therefore statements, right? The therefore portion of, of his letters where he talks about the more doctrinal things. He does this in Romans and Galatians and Ephesians. If you've been to the Monday night uh, Bible study, you definitely know this in Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and more. In, in all of these letters, Paul's main thrust is calling the saints, in calling the saints to a life in the spirit and of love and of compassion, of renewal. It, that thrust is almost always that God has done something for us first, right? Whether it's sending the Son to die for us, whether it's great spiritual blessings that he has equipped us with, or whatever it is, God has done something for us first. He has served us first. So that ought to move us to do something back. So what does this mean for us? Well, what Jesus did in John 13 is significant, not in just that Jesus is God and or he is deity and that, that he does something that is uh, dirty and grimy and lacked dignity. That's not the only significance that image has. Jesus humbled himself to the point of washing feet, washing the feet of the creation when he was the creator. I mean, they were supposed to be worshiping him. And even Jesus himself implied that he was doing so as an example, to provide an example a model for his students. God has given us Jesus in the flesh so that he can testify for God right? and, and for himself and to preach the kingdom that is at hand and to serve mankind in a way that he couldn't for himself. In other words, on the cross. And Jesus, the Son, Consequently, has done these things according to the will of the Father. He has served, he has healed, he has fed people. He has taken care of the marginalized of society, the oppressed, the people who are cast aside, the outcasts. And he preached the gospel. And at the end, he ultimately died on the cross. But he was raised again. And Jesus, as he promised, sent the Spirit. And the Spirit continues to work with us. He dwells with us. He dwells within us. And he continues to inspire us and, and to move us and to guide us in the spiritual things. Do you see a pattern here? It's like the torch has been passed down to us. God has done everything in his power, everything that he can do and will do. He has already done for us and is continuing to do for us in his service to us, which we do not deserve. But this is because he is gracious and merciful. And he grants us the free will to choose. We can choose God or choose something else. As Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 through 14, we've been called to freedom. And the expectation that is put upon us now is that with this calling to liberty, we're not to use this just to do whatever we want and, and to, to live life freely of selfish motivations, but to use that freedom to do good, to love each other, to serve. Why? Because God served us first. We are called to love one another. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, 
you know the parable. It's about the unforgiving servant that Jesus tells. Um, and, and we understand what happened in the story, right? A servant owed a, a great amount of debt to the king, but the king, out of, you know, with, with grace and mercy, he just forgives that debt, and, and the, the servant goes scot-free, and then what does he do? Right after he turns around from the king, he goes and starts choking this other servant, right? Because he owed him a, a little, little bitty, relatively small debt, and he throws him in prison. And hearing this, the king is angry, and he throws the unforgiving servant into prison until his debt is fully repaid, which basically means never, because it was an unpayable debt. Why is the servant wicked? Why is the servant considered as an example of, of something that we ought not to do? It's because he received something that he didn't deserve, and he turned around, and he, he, he failed. He failed to forgive, and he failed to do the same thing. He received something that he didn't deserve, and he failed to give. If God who is so righteous and just and perfect, can delay judgment and show mercy and steadfast love. If that God can, can not only, you know, having withheld judgment, but also humbled himself in the form of the flesh and came, on, came to this earth to do what? To start a kingdom? To be a king? To conquer? No, to wash feet and, and, and to serve the lowly and look after the poor and to tell the desolate, of this good news. If God can do that, then we, then we ought to do that. If God can serve us first, we ought to owe our service to Him and to others. Because our service to Him extends into our lives as service to our neighbors, to our brothers and sisters. We ought not to be like the unforgiving servant who received something that he did not deserve and failed to turn around and give to others the service that they deserved. What's holding you back from service? You know, what excuse do you have? We have a lot of excuses for a lot of different things, but what excuse do you have uh, against devoting yourself to service to God and, and service to each other? I mean, what, ex- what better excuse do you have against uh, the, the, the great God, the creator of all things, who has, who has humbled himself to die on the cross for you? What excuse do we have? Knowing these things, we can't. We can't complain. We can't grumble. And we can't, we can't mumble at the sight of work to do. But we ought to be moved and inspired to serve as the Father, Son, and the Spirit has served us first when we didn't deserve it. And we still don't, and we will never deserve it. If you have not taken the first step in joining God's family, you know, there's no better time uh, beginning your journey in the study of, of God's Word and, and learning just what all God has done for you already. And when you realize, I promise, I promise you, you will be moved to make things right. And if you're already Christian but have been lacking in any way recently, I mean, we just learned that God is merciful and gracious and, and is, is a God of second chances. Micah teaches us that God will cast our sins into the depths of the seas. But you have to be willing to admit 
And you have to be willing to take God's hand that he has reached out to us in reconciliation. We all, we all have needs, and, and we are all here for the purpose of not only worshiping our God, that is our primary goal, but also to uphold the commandment of loving each other, of, of taking care of each other. Won't you help us do that as you come while we stand and sing?